Okay, September 1998. You get out after doing... Uh, right at seven years. How many, how many right, years? Right, right at seven, seven years. years. I went in seven September years. 91, got out September 98. You get out after doing seven years in prison. Uh, a big chunk of your life. Yeah. And then nine months later, you get caught with 10 pounds of marijuana and two guns in Oklahoma. Man, let me... Yeah, man. Uh, you go in at 14, you come out at 21. Boy, that's a big old gap of no life experiences, right? No life experiences. I don't know how to talk to girls. I didn't go to high school. I don't know nothing about prom. Man, I don't know how to put on a rubber. I don't know how to I don't know how to ride the bus. If you if you tell me go north on such and such street, I literally didn't know which way was north, south, east, and west as an as a 21-year-old standing somewhere, right? Uh they had just started the two-story McDonald's. They the PlayStation McDonald's was bigger than what they wasn't outside. So man, I'm 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 lost, right? Nine months after getting out. I was on my way to go enroll at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I mean, I was going to go college. Uh, I had a, I had a, I had a younger cousin, uh, Stephen White, uh, God rest his soul. He was the president of the Black Student Association, and he wanted to be the weed man on campus, and so. Uh, I joined in with him uh, and wanting to be the weed man. I didn't know how much a pound of weed weighed. I didn't know how much an ounce was. I just know uh, they say a pound of weed costs four seventy five in Texas. And if you take it up to Arkansas, you can get a thousand for it. So that's all I knew. And so this is my little cousin. He was already in college uh, as a political science major. And so I, I would just go go up there, live with him, and enroll in college. I got the paperwork started, uh, and we came down and scored 10 pounds of weed to go up there and try to hustle uh, and jumped into another nigga's federal investigation. Uh, some niggas that had this, this, this CD shit called That Sounds Good. So we, we, we go over there and get 10 pounds of weed from them niggas, put it in the black trash bag, we in the, we in the rental car, and we just throw it in the back. Don't try to hide it or nothing. Just throw it in the back. He got to take exams the next morning. So rather than us waiting and drive during the daytime, we driving in the middle of the night, rolling weed. Rolling weed. When Napoleon, so I've never drove before. This time I want to play big cousin. Man, I'm going to drive. You don't need to drive. As soon as we crossed state lines, uh, the police was waiting on us uh, in Atoka, Oklahoma, 10 pounds and two firearms. Uh, I took it to trial, had a mistrial. Uh, all I know is, you know, man, you fight. So uh, I had a mistrial, and I remember uh, the prosecutor asking the arresting officer, so where was they going? 
And he said, oh, they were taking this marijuana to Arkansas to sell it because they had Arkansas memorabilia. Well, during my seven years in the juvenile system, I learned one of the best things you can do as a person in trouble with the law is to remain silent. Don't give any statements. So when we was pulled over, I told everybody, don't say nothing. Just hand your IDs. And uh, when we went to trial and the, the, the prosecutor asked the, the, the arresting officer where was they going, and he said we was going to Arkansas, uh, my lawyer, Doug Elliott, jumped up and said, I object, Your Honor, such and such, such and such, such and such. And to this day, I don't know what the fuck he said. <laughs> and I just know that motherfucking old white judge with that Hawaiian shirt on, he had a Hawaiian shirt, and the motherfucker looked drunk. And he told my lawyer to go find it in the law book. And so we went to recess. And my lawyer came back and he found whatever he found. And we had a mistrial. So they dropped the gun charges. And they offered me a uh, six months prison boot camp uh, uh, in Oklahoma in a program that was called RID, a regimented inmate discipline program. So I, I had just come home after doing seven years, and I had to go do six months. And, man, that six months was worse than those seven years because this is boot camp. This is in your face. Say, motherfucker, with the hat right here, a hat right here, a hat right here, and they whooping your ass with PT exercises. Uh, yeah. At this time, it was called Relay Rides. It's now called Turo. So one day, we were in our condo, and he went downstairs to say, yo, I got to get my keys to somebody. I'm like, what are you doing, selling your car? And he said, no, I'm renting it. Like, you're renting your car? He rented his car. His, his, I think it was a Challenger. Yeah, his Challenger, Superman logo and all that on the car, because somebody offered the platform called Relay Rise. Mm. Like, yo, how much are they paying you? Yeah, I've charged about 130 a day, but I, I usually charge 150 Oh, you mean tell me somebody's gonna take your car, drive it for one th for one thirty a day, return it back to you, and you get to keep the cash? Mm -hmm. So yeah, kind of sort because relay rides they get a percentage. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, what's the percentage? She said 70, 30, 70, 30 split. I was like, that still makes sense. Right. But I didn't jump into the business right then and there. I said I just thought of it as a cool concept until I actually needed it. Mm -hmm. Right? I actually needed it when my I was realizing my Tesla was just sitting there doing nothing. So I go to Turo.com, check out the process. All they needed was a picture of my ID, upload a picture ID, and it was easier than making a Facebook profile. I uploaded <laughs> a picture of my car, priced it, same day I got a booking. Mm. Same day. But I'm really analytical, so I had to f first do some research, right? I got the booking. I got super excited, over $150, but... I had to do a little research on how to do the drop-offs, um, what happens if my car gets stolen, how's insurance taken care of. I was asking all these questions in my head, and I went on YouTube and found a couple videos, but it wasn't like there's nothing like really step-by-step. Step. So I was all over the Internet. It will be times where like three days in a row, I'll be up in the, until like 3 o'clock in the morning trying to get as much information as possible. But I said, all right, I'm going to be have information overload. Let me just go ahead and just... Follow the process and learn as I go. So I upload my my Tesla. Maggie, her name's Maggie, my first booker. 
She had a son. She was in town. She told me the whole story. She had a son, was in for a soccer game. She needed me to drop the car off at the airport. She'll pick it up and return my car. Mm-hmm. Right? So I dropped the I dropped the car off, right? But I had to figure out, dang, I'm dropping the car off. How am I gonna get home? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to get home. Right? So I had to take Uber. The Uber cost was like $25, $30. Mm-hmm. So that's already cutting into my profits. Right. Like, hold up, this is a, this is, is this really gonna make sense? Because I got paid thirty dollars to go back home. Cool, whatever. Then she calls me and says, oh, "I can't get the car out the um, parking lot because I left it at the parking mm-hmm. lot." This was a dummy mistake because I didn't had no experience. So I left the car in the parking lot, and now she and tells me, call, "Well, no, she she has the key, right? I left the key in the car right. with a test lock and unlock and lock the car right. from from my app. So mm-hmm. I unlocked it." But it charged her to leave, take the car out. Gotcha. $32. Oh. It might have been 36 Something crazy. Yeah, you're like 50-something. Already. already. Mm. This is real life. Yeah, you're like, sucks <laughs> it already. Bro, so, all right, cool. I said, all right, I'll take my own. learning experience. Cool. Right? I'm through the process. The days, hours are passing. I'm actively checking my Tesla app to see where she's going, how fast she's moving. I was kind of low-key scared because this is my first time. Yeah. I personally have no personal attachment to any of the cars. Like any car that I have is for business. However, I was still like going through the motions. Long story short, this was on a this was on a Friday going into Saturday. She returns her car Saturday. Of course, I'm in church. She returns the car to the parking lot, right? But she leaves it inside the airport parking lot. Yeah. Now, I have to figure out how to get there on Sunday, Uber, or I can catch a ride. I actually got an Uber, which was another 12, 20, I think it was $20. And then I have to pay another $36 to get the car out again. That's $116. I'm just tracking, like, what's Off going of that on? just mistake that I didn't know better on how to manage property. And then out of the hundred fifty dollars split, like there's a split, right? It goes into row. So you took an L. It, the L wasn't even just. It didn't stop there. <laughs> I got the car. This is real life. I got the car out of the parking lot. Thirty minutes later, no lie, another booking for the airport. <laughs> Bro, I got to go all the way back to the airport and drop the car back and go through the process again. Wow. I could have just left it there and just had the next guest pick it up right. from there, right? So I'm going through the motions, but me, I'm like, okay, I'm not mad. I'm not complaining about the situation. I'm really enjoying this process, but I'm like, okay, I'll figure it out later on, right? Come to find out, the dude booked the car, same situation. You had to pay for the car, parking ticket, all that good stuff, whatever. But it was just my second booking. Long story short, throughout the month, I end up grossing, Right? $4,000 off of the car. First month. Profit, yeah. One car. Yeah, one car. Gross or net? Gross. My profit was twenty six sixty five, gotcha. something like that. Gotcha. Right? So where did all that money go towards? It went towards the um, washing the car. It went towards um, tickets, Uber rides, no gas. I'm honest. Like, that was never my goal. My goal was never to help other people. It was, it was a secret, right? You understand. Everything, I, my family thought I sold drugs. <laughs> right? Like, I always see. People People think that 
yo, everybody, these dudes be online selling information. This is how they make money. They ain't really doing it. I tell people, fact check me. I have Bentley truck before I ever help somebody. Ever, right? G-Wagons before ever own my house. Investment properties before I assisted because I had the game. But I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's how we feel. We know something. Sometimes we don't tell people. You got secrets and stuff that you know be like, yo, nah, I know how we get to podcast number one. We know. <laughs> like, yo, I'm not telling. Right? I'm not going to come. I'm not going to tell. Got to run around. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you got to go figure it out yourself. Um, Eric Thomas. Eric Thomas. Um, I was in Masters of the Game. And Eric Thomas said that if you know something that can help another man change the trajectory of his family and their future, and you don't share that information, you selfish. And it sat on me for a while. Cause I still was like, yeah, right. <laughs> um, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm like, it, it sat on me for a while. Um, but it, it, it came to a point to where it was like, yo, is that what's the what's the impact that you're gonna really want to make? Now that you're making money, I have my daughter, and then I started really seeing like I was born when I was born. My mom was homeless. We lived in a shelter from the gate. When I had my daughter, she came home to a house I own, and I think and I look and I go, "There's so many people that need this. I'm gonna be wrong if I don't share it, right?" And so. Everything I created, though, was like for myself. So then I started sharing it with people. That's when the recession proof started. And that's when I created a community. But I didn't create like a program. I literally created a family. So everything that we need, I go out and we do things, right? Like events that we have. We all came to the yeah, event. It was recession proof was official. Yeah, official. Official. I fly on private jets. Guess what happened? My mentees fly on private jets. You're part of, we are family. We operate on the same level. So they flying in on private jets. We got all the exotic vehicles. They drive nice vehicles. They drive nice cars. The whole event was free. So what happens is, is that not only are they learning being able to be financial literate, they learn how to run and scale businesses. So now I'm teaching you everything you need to know about credit, but then I'm creating leaders because it's in order if for what I did for my community. How can I get? I was like, yo, I need at least 10, 15 other people doing this. I never expected it to be hundreds yet thousands of people going, nah, I need to help my community. I need to help my community. And it's still people out there who don't know who I am or that I exist. But. It's thousands of us helping our community. So when we get on these platforms, this is the the growth point is that we need more leaders in our community. Mm -hmm. We need more people who are financial literate to take this back. Everybody's not going to have the tenacity and say, I want to fish for myself. But for those who do, those are the people that we need to stand up in the community that they need to take that back home and be that for their family. They need to be that for the people around them, that resource for them to come and get this information from. Because if they watching this podcast or listen to this podcast, how many people they know who don't listen to it? Mm -hmm. Who didn't catch this information? 
So that's my point is like when you look at recession proof, my whole goal is to create leaders in the community when it comes to financial literacy, when it comes to actually business, um, when it comes to growing and scaling and just being all around leaders, um, not only with financial literacy, but if you see we did a the takeaway, remember we did the Kroger takeover, mm. shut it down, kind of went viral a little oh, bit. That was yeah, incredible. That was, that was incredible. Big time viral. That was big yeah. viral. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, salute to that. I forgot about that. Salute to that. That yeah. was yeah. That was really dope. If anybody that's not familiar, um the guys um mm-hmm. went into Kroger in Atlanta and I think they uh twenty thousand dollars? dollars for uh for families before Thanksgiving so they can, uh, you know, not have to worry about that bill and, um, you know, buy yeah. groceries. So. Yeah, y'all did the free gas, too. Oh. We did the free gas. The crazy thing is we did the gas before, before the Kroger's, right? Before yeah. the Kroger. We almost went to do another gas station. But instead, we was like, yo, we decided let's just go do the Kroger. Went in the Kroger. We tried to do gift cards. And realized that wasn't going to work. <laughs> and we just <laughs> said, open the lines up. Everybody just ran it through. That's why the receipts were so long. We just let the line run. Everybody run through, run the groceries through. It was two days before Thanksgiving. Um, everybody ran through. And we took care of it. Me and all the, all the guys, a whole bunch of entrepreneurs, we all got together. And collectively, we did it together. I'm here with premier Las Vegas criminal defense lawyer, Michael Becker. And Michael, people call us all the time uh, and they ask us, with regard to battery domestic violence, uh, normally it's a misdemeanor, but sometimes it can be a felony, right? When, when is it a felony? There are several circumstances which can result in a battery domestic violence situation turning into a felony. Uh, first, if you have a third time battery domestic violence, that would be a felony. So if you have two, two prior domestic violence convictions, then third is automatically a felony. That's correct. Also, if there's a battery with strangulation, that can be charged as a felony. If there's a, bad, a battery with substantial bodily harm, that can be treated as a felony. And if there's a battery... Uh, with use of a deadly weapon in a domestic situation, that would also be treated as a felony. Now, this this substantial bodily harm. So you're saying, even if the person has no prior record, um, if if they cause injury to the uh, you know to the alleged victim in this case, then it can be charged as a felony. W- what kind of injuries are we talking about? Because usually the police come. You know, maybe there there's some redness or some scratches. I mean, is it superficial injury like that or is it like something real serious? Well, I would say if it's superficial injury, typically we expect to see those cases filed as misdemeanor mm-hmm. battery, domestic violence. But the more serious the injury is, the greater possibility that it could be filed as a felony charge. And ultimately, that's up to the discretion of the prosecutor's office uh, when they make a filing decision as to whether or not to file it as a misdemeanor or a felony. And, and even if it is filed as a felony, then um, as a criminal defense lawyer, many times you're able to uh, uh, sometimes get it reduced to a, a misdemeanor 
or, uh, or even get the, the case dismissed. That's right. A lot of factors come into play. Um, and it's not uncommon to see a, a domestic violence case filed initially as a felony, but negotiated down to a standard misdemeanor battery, battery domestic violence. Again, a lot's going to depend on the circumstances. Sometimes it could have to do with the willingness of the alleged victim to step forward. Sometimes it could have to do with the, the merits of the allegations and, and the fact that there's a second story uh, that the defendant might have that totally contradicts the accuser. The, so, the client may have acted in self-defense or the, the injury may have happened as a result of an accident. And, and oftentimes that occurs and it, it looks to the police when they get there like there was domestic violence. That's correct. And I would say the, the most common scenario that we see is that the initial aggressor ends up getting the worst of it. So maybe the person um, that was hurt was struck with a blow that was, that was thrown in self-defense. And the, the police come and they typically jump tend to... Jump to conclusions. Yeah, they, they often jump to conclusions and they often tend to arrest... The man. Well, often the man or alternatively the one that doesn't have the worst injury. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know, one is the victim and the other is the perpetrator. That's correct. So you really have to, in domestic violence cases, you really have to sift through all of the evidence, speak to all of the witnesses to get the full story. And, uh, you know, if the DA realizes that they may have gotten it wrong, you present the evidence to them and often you can negotiate a reasonable resolution. And if the DA doesn't agree, then often you present your case to a judge or a jury and, and go for a not guilty verdict. That's correct. I think we see trials in these types of cases at a higher percentage than you would in other areas of criminal defense law. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been charged with battery domestic violence, we know there are two sides of the story. Call us at 702-DEFENSE. Let's hear your side of the story and let's see what we can do to help you get your charges reduced or dismissed. Somehow or another, we ended up talking like he caught, he, I think he, did he text me? It doesn't matter. Regardless, we end up talking, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, hey, man, what's going on? He's told me he wanted to talk. He sent me another text, and he wanted to talk to me about real estate. Okay, fine. So we, he said, hey, man, I'm doing real estate. Like, I'm renovating a house right now. I'm, I think he said he was building another house. He's like, I'm doing so good, man. And, and he, he's going on and on. I was like, okay, okay. And then I remember he, we... I accepted a friend request from him and I went through his scroll and, and he's got through his, you know, scrolled through his, his Facebook and he has got all these pictures of him with just Louis Vuitton and, 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 uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, it's just, just all kinds of, of, uh, all kinds of, of name brand stuff, you know, uh, Prada, whatever. He's driving a big car. He's got little videos. He's wearing clothes, $1,000, $2,000 suits. He's 
he and his wife are all these pictures of them shopping. There's pictures of, there's pictures of, of them with, you know, just all kinds of, of ridiculous stuff. And I've done rehabs. I've done lots and lots and lots of re, sorry, I've flipped properties. Like I bought properties, fixed them up, sold them. And I've done tons of them. You don't get out of prison, put that whole operation together and make the kind of money that he was flashing on Facebook. I re remember I immediately thought, no, something's wrong, something's up. What ended up happening was he, he kept, he called me another time and he, when we were talking, he's like, man, we got to get together. We got to get together. And I was like, yeah, I know we, we, we definitely do. We definitely do. <laughs> thinking I'm not getting together with this guy. There's no way I'm hanging out with this guy. This guy, there's something up. And he kept talking about real estate. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm flipping a property right now. I'm fixing up. I'm doing this. I'm like, is that what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm, in, I'm all into real estate and stuff. Oh, you're flipping a bunch of property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is like my, this is like my first one, uh, or, or first or second one. I forget what he said. And I just remember thinking, how are you making this kind of money? You know, where's this money coming from? This guy's done nothing his whole life except for fraud. He's been, he's committed nothing but fraud. I, I just, so I, I, I instinctively like, like my, I have pretty good intuition. My intuition told me something's wrong. He must've called me. I want to say he called me two or three times every single time. It was like, Hey, I'm in Tampa. Uh, uh, can we meet for lunch? I'm like, Oh man, I'm so sorry. I just left. I'm in Orlando. Like. I never ended up meeting him. Like, I always had an excuse. I'm sorry. I'm so swamped with work. I can't. I this. And I'm sure if I wanted to, I could have met him. But I felt like something was up. Something was definitely up. And I just, something told me, this guy, he's troubled. Don't meet with them. You're, you know, you're not supposed to be, you can't be hanging out with felons. I mean, he's calling. There's nothing I can do. The guy calls me. Like, I, I can't be like, don't you call me again. You know, I hang up the phone. I'm like, all right. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. But I'm not mean with this guy. I'm not, I'm not going to associate myself with this guy. And no big deal. I didn't hear from him for a while. So I probably heard from him a couple of weeks ago and then suddenly someone sends me an, a text message that says, do you know this guy? And it sends me this clip, the clip that Colby's going to put on the, uh, I think we, you could put it up here and play it. Like if you embed it in here and just play the clip, someone sent me this clip from the news and here's the clip. When you hear at 11, this Davenport couple is accused of trying to defraud the government out of more than $5 million in COVID relief money. 
According to court records, the couple spent some of that money gambling at casinos. All right, so apparently Julio Lugo was committing fraud. He was, uh, he had applied for $5.8 million in PPP loans. And, you know, those are the loans that are set up to help corporations, you know, large businesses, small businesses, basically make payroll. <clears throat> so, based on what I've read, I've read like two or three articles, and almost all the articles are just really based on, on the, uh, uh, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office will release like a press release and then newspapers pick it up and they just rewrite. They're really just, you know, anyway. Little Dirk is one of the most notorious rappers in the Chicago drill era of hip-hop music. With almost 5 million followers on Instagram, it's safe to say that Little Dirk has a solid fan base that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Dirk's melodic style of drill music is a big reason why he stood out compared to other Chicago rappers during his rise to stardom. But just like most of the other Chicago rappers, a big part of Little Dirk's appeal was the authenticity of his music. You knew the little Dirk was rapping about real-life experiences, and not just some make-believe nonsense to sell records. In addition to that, Lil Dirk was also respected by a lot of his peers due to his efforts of speaking out against gang violence in Chicago. And the reason why he gained so much respect for that is because Lil Dirk actually lived that kind of lifestyle before rapping, and wants his fans or just anyone in general to know that gang life is not something that you ever want to be a part of. Curious what kind of street antics Little Dirk got into? Well, we have you covered. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Lil Dirk. Lil Dirk had his first documented arrest in October of 2011. According to multiple reports, Lil Dirk was charged with a few different gun charges, with the main one being possession of a firearm with a defaced serial number. A gun charge is no joke in Chicago, so this was a pretty serious first charge, especially with the serial number being scratched off the gun. Having no serial number gives the cops a good reason to think that the weapon is being used for criminal-like reasons. At his sentencing, Lil Dirk pled guilty to a reduced charge of aggravated, unauthorized use of a weapon. Lil Dirk spent three months in jail and was later released on bond, but was later sent back to serve 87 more days. Even though this was Lil Dirk's first conviction, it still made Dirk a convicted felon. Lil Dirk's next arrest was on June 5th, 2013. According to court records, Little Dirk was hanging around on South Green Street in Chicago when police approached him to investigate a call of a man with a gun. This must have caught Little Dirk off guard because he apparently took a loaded 40 caliber handgun out of his waistband and quickly threw it in his car. Little Dirk 
obviously wasn't very stealthy when doing this because the police clearly saw Dirk do this, which gave them enough probable cause to search his vehicle. After a quick search, Chicago police arrested little Dirk right on the spot. Dirk's charge was unlawful use of a weapon by a felon. Little Dirk was held on a $100,000 bond, and his lawyer would later claim to have nine affidavits from witnesses who can confirm Little Dirk was innocent. One witness even admitted that the gun was his and not Little Dirk's. Dirk was released about a month later on July 18, 2013. Little Dirk's next run-in with the law wasn't an arrest, but rather a shootout that took place while he was on tour. Sources say that a shootout happened just hours before Little Dirk's scheduled performance at the Theater of Living Arts in Center City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The shootout left Little Dirk's tour bus damaged by gunfire and also left one man dead. Little Dirk was not arrested or questioned by the police. No other updates were made public on this situation as well. This next incident is just an update from when he was arrested on June 5th, 2013 on felony gun charges. According to court records, Little Dirk was ordered to court on August 19th, 2016, where the judge dropped all of his charges. The judge must have noticed that he was changing his ways and admired that he was speaking out against Chicago gang violence. Shortly after, Little Dirk moved to Atlanta where he became completely focused on music and even claimed to be a studio rat. Little Dirk managed to stay out of trouble for about three years. But it all came to an end after Dirk became a wanted man by the Fulton County Police Department. Multiple reports claim that Little Dirk had a warrant issued for his arrest and planned to charge Little Dirk with criminal intent to commit murder, aggravated assault, possession of a firearm during commission of a felony, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and associating with a criminal street gang to participate in a crime. And here's the kicker. All of these charges stem from the King Vaughn incident that we covered in a video a few days ago. The link to that video will be in the top left corner and in the description below. I highly suggest you check that out to get more details on this situation. Anyways, Duke's Jeep was allegedly the car used in the shooting, and Dirk, Vaughn, and another OTF affiliate, Bayzoo or Zoo, were all reported to be in the car at the time of the shooting. Since the situation was so serious, Atlanta is charging all of them with the same charges regardless of who actually pulled the trigger. King Vaughn was the first to get arrested, and then it was Zoo, and now all that was left was Lil Dirk. A few days after hearing about the warrants for his arrest, Lil Dirk posted on his Instagram story, turning myself in tomorrow. This was a huge shock to his fans, since nobody expected him to be involved in a shooting, especially after all his success. The next day, Dirk dropped a song called Turn Myself In, and just a few hours later, he actually did turn himself in. Little Dirk fell on those times I went when the Boost Mobile, he passed, Boost Mobile store crash, I mean Boost Mobile store launch, I'm going through depression, lose relationship, lose the Boost Mobile store. I fall on hard times, I went and started working at a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, right? 
You go from all that to working out of where that's humbling. I go from. Yo, there's nothing worse. There's, it, it's bad to be down. Mm-hmm. But nothing worse than to go up and then come down. Yo. That's tough. I go from living in a condo in Alpharetta, driving a G-Class Benz truck, AMG, to a 1996 Mercury Cougar, Mm. working at a warehouse, living in my sister's house with five kids. At the time, she had five kids in the three-bedroom, four-bedroom. I I made it uncomfortable. Yeah. I made the living uncomfortable. Yeah. I didn't even have a bedroom set. I had an air bed. The Mercury Cougar, the door didn't open from the inside. I had to open it from the outside. Mm. Listen to me. That's when I said, and I knew it looking back. <laughs> Yo, you finna get the bar. I've never, I was going through depression and didn't know it. You know how I found out? I'm working at a warehouse and I go, <clears throat> why am I here? Once again, I'm poor hustling. I wanted to, they were going to fire me. I needed to make it to Christmas because we get Christmas bonus. It's like a $2,000 check, yeah. right? I said, how do I do it? Thinking, I go and I call. I know the next day they're going to fire me. So I call psychiatric uh, hospitals to have insurance and say, I'm thinking about hurting somebody. They go, are you thinking about hurting yourself? I go, no, I'm thinking about hurting my manager. So they go, okay, let's come in for a psych evaluation. I go, what happened? I go, yo, listen, I'm just randomly crying, having outbreaks, real emotional, and it's just like, I don't know why it's always him as a person, like when I'm dreaming, it's him that I'm seeing on myself punching and like physically attacking. I don't know what it is. It was like, well, what kind of hours you working? I'm working 60 hours a week. Boom, boom, boom. She take me off work that day. They were gonna fire me that night. Mm. But I've talked myself so much into this story to get out of work. They made me go to counseling. <laughs> In counseling, I find my depression. Wow. Of what I was going through, where I was at, mind state, what I didn't deal with. What did you find out about yourself through counseling? Through the traumas that I was living through, I've never dealt with them. I was uncomfortable even talking about my best friend. Like, I've made it to where it didn't exist. So they taught me and I remember she was like giving me different exercises and she had to make me comfortable even speaking and acknowledging what happened, things that happened. It's okay, it's part of life. That I had to cope with that, with the fact that that relationship I had is gone. So after that, she had to deal with it head on. Boom. Wow. So then I realized, it took me a little while, I went back. And um, when I went back to that job, 
cheeked in and said, why are you even here? I got the bonus. Mm-hmm. Got the Christmas right, bonus. I came right. back a week before. Right. I got the bonus, right? <laughs> Listen, they were upset, right? Shout out to ABW out there in Kennesaw. Yeah, I got the check, right? Um, I went and I said, why am I even here? I went and applied for Wells Fargo. I became personal banker. Guys, from warehouse, personal banker. Got back in my suit. Got it. <laughs> right, right. So, back to the old Jew. So I got back in my suit. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I got back in the suit. Um, and that's when I started learning banking products. I started learning that people couldn't get approved for business loans. They couldn't get approved for loans at all. Like the, the ratio for people who get loans. Mm-hmm. I was giving loans to people who I would look and they would have like a $2 million mortgage. What? Yeah, they would have a $2 million mortgage. They can come and get a loan. Oh, you got a, oh, you got 200000 Yeah, nah, you can't get nothing. Hold on, a $2 million mortgage? Yeah, no, listen, I was working in Roswell, Wells Fargo, right? People will come in, they have $2 million mortgages. They will be able to come in and go, looking for a personal loan. They can come and get when I when I When I go out of town, I actually go to Peachy. I go in at $7.50 a day. And he said, yo, he'll just go down there, he pay the seven fifty, yeah. leave, they go pick it That's up. That's what I was doing before I got my lot. And what's right. crazy, I was paying all this money to Peachy this whole time, not knowing that the lot that I was soon to have was right next to it. Right I next had, door. Um, here's, the, here's the clutch, Hutch Clutch Play. So Peachy, they use a third party called Way, uh, W-A-Y. W-A-Y. And I was paying half the price that Peachy charges. On way. On way. Yo, they be having joints for $2, That's what bro. I was paying. $2, because this was before I knew about the airport drop. I'm like, I'm not going to be paying $36 for these parking tickets no more. Yeah. I'm going to drop the car off at the airport, mm-hmm. parking lot, peachy, pay $2, and then charge the guests for the, for the $2. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then, so, the beautiful thing is, they'll pick the car up. From Peachy, going about their way to travel. When they drop the car off at Peachy, they can take the Peachy shuttle back to the airport. Mm. Smooth process. Perfect. Perfect. Smooth process. If I have to pick up the car, or one of my team members have to pick up the car, right? They'll take the train, this Atlantic station, there's a train that goes straight to the airport. So they don't mm. have to worry about driving, getting caught in traffic. Yeah. It was a smooth ride to the airport, pick the car up, and move on from there. So what's, so, uh, and it's so crazy because you've been doing this for... Only two years. Two years. Going crazy. And you're just now, you just now put out your course. And... That's a fact. Yo, I I don't know how many courses you sold, (laughs) like the the first release, right? It's ridiculous. Knocking on my door for this. Yeah, because people have been asking you for yes. for two years, yes. yo, put me on. Yes, I've been sharing this yeah, and I, and I for saw, free. Right, right, right. But, you know, my, my boys, they, they was like, bro, drop the course. Package right. this material and drop in, in a course form. So I ain't going to lie, him 500 Marcus, he, he was on my neck 
Mm. Neo on my neck about dropping a course. Yeah. Calling me, bro, you gotta drop a course. You know how he talks? Right. You gotta drop the course. Or we're gonna do it. What you mean you're gonna drop the tour? All right, all right, I'll, I'll drop it next week. Right, right. So I posted my Instagram, like, yo, everybody, I'm dropping this course. Here's the date. I didn't even build it out yet. I knew setting a date is gonna force me to do it. Because mm. I'm so used to giving out the game for free, enjoying the, the responses, that I didn't feel right charging for it. Yeah. Right? But that, I got a bar with that where. If I don't charge, you know how Neo to be talking yeah. to. If I don't charge, they're not gonna put it into action. They're yeah. not gonna respect it. You already know that how that sure. works, stupid. So I said, cool. I'm gonna charge. You see, I'm gonna test out the price. I charged twelve ninety nine. As soon as I put on my Instagram stories, I'm launching the course. I'm doing pre sales. Cash at me. I got cash at. Cash at went crazy. Man, man, look at my cash at right. Where, where my phone at? Let me see. Cash out right now. Cash I'm gonna, I'm gonna it wasn't my, a link. It wasn't no credit straight. card. And they trust me. Most people are like, nah, that's a cash fact. That's a fact. I, and I believe because you built a, and you know, for those that know you, know, like, you are a very credible person, yeah, yeah, very honest. Like, I'm it's there. not, we know that, like, Steve. money ain't your biggest thing. Yeah, yeah. You feel me? So when you put out something, they're like, yo, I'm here for it. I rock that's with it. That's what happened, man. I got instant feedback. I, I didn't know that people were willing to pay for this information, but I had to stop devaluing the, devaluing this information. This information, if I had it, I would have saved that $2,800. Yeah. I would have saved all the money I lost in the beginning stages, st stages to the point where I now just, yo, here's the course information. If you need to know, I have it all documented here. So what's, what's, what's in the course? Talk to me about the what's whole in the process. Course. How to buy a vehicle. The best way how to not get finessed by the salespeople. <laughs> Anytime somebody goes to the dealership, you think you're going to be there in there for an hour? How long do most people be in the dealership for? Forever. Four hours, five hours, six hours. And they beat your brain until, until you feel like you just want to die. Mm. So that's when they get you in the finance room and they have you signing all these. Oh, you need warranty? It's just going to be an extra $20 on your monthly payment. <laughs> sign here. Man, give me the keys, man. Give me money. It prevents that in that session. Right. I teach how to uh, figure out what business model you want. Do you want to be an owner in this business, meaning you cash out a car or finance a car under your name? Or do you want to be a broker where you're a middleman between mm -hmm. the cars? Mm -hmm. Meaning you don't have to get the car yourself. David, his Range Rover... Somebody wants a Range Rover. I'm in the middle of saying, yo, you need a Range Rover? David got it for you. He charges $200 a day. You can pay him directly and run me my $50 to so let you know about that booking. Mm. That's a broker. You're the middleman. Yo, let me ask you this. Because a guy sent me a DM. Um, hold on. Um, a, a guy sent me a, a I, I think I made a post about it. And um, a guy... Uh, he sent me a DM about um, his car. This is the keys. This is what it looks like. Da, 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 da. My boy Jacoby, again, the one who told me about relay rides, which mm -hmm. was Turo at the time. Right. He said, yo, I, got, I know a dude who has a parking lot mm -hmm. at the airport. Here's his number. Check him out. His name is um, Kareem. So I called him. 
went checked the, the spot out. It looked like a full a rental car company. Right. But it was empty. It was next to Enterprise, next to Hertz, wow. next to a car rental company. Um, I mean, car van company that rents out vans and um, Peachy Airlock Air Airport parking. Where so yeah. when you go to the airport, you can park your car. Yeah, there. for sure. Yeah, that's where I park all the time. It was right there. I said, mm. "Yo, what can we do this? Do the deal?" He told me, "Well, I got the spot for my own car rental company, but I'm not doing it right now. So you can rent each space for hundred dollars a car." I said, "Run it." So I'm paying four thousand dollars a month to have it. What about the office space? Can I get it? I'm not using it right now. You can use it. Cool. I'm using it. Oh, wow. Long story short, he ended up not being on. The, I'm basically took over the whole thing, renovated it, put the sign up, got a whole car rental lot. My own car on the lot in Atlanta, Georgia, at the airport. Wow. So when I when I have on my listing on Turo, and now it says pickup address, airport. But what's crazy is, it's two minutes away from the airport. However, I still was charged a delivery fee. So anybody who needed a car at the airport, you know I was what? Bro, Joshua was telling me, he does, like, yeah, he was like, yo, the, um, he was telling me that his his delivery fee was fifty dollars, so he'll drive there and back or just one way. Fifty. He said his delivery fee is fifty dollars. He goes deliver for fifty dollars. Yeah. But then I looked on yours and I saw it was one twenty. Yes, one twenty. So I'm gonna call Joshua today. Like, yo, you know, man, he charges one twenty for See, delivery. That's he got two Porsches on there because yeah, he, yeah, he got five cars all together. Yeah. He started getting cars like, bro, you ain't tell me you, you joined a tour. Oh, he's asking lit. me all these questions, he's but lit. where did his cars come from? Right, right. Yeah, brother Davey. Davey, my yeah. brother Davey, brother Ed. Like, a lot of the people that see me, they now understand the process. It just makes sense. Yeah, I, first off, I, and I feel some type of way because I was the first to know. So you were the first and to know. And the last to take action. <laughs> <laughs> that's legit what happened. But that's legit what happened. Yo. I told you first, like, bro. You gotta know about what I'm doing right now. It didn't because make sense to me. I, I saw from your face the way you looked at me. I'm like, oh, he just don't get it. Uh, thanks to God for uh, but, for but now it flourishes. Yeah. It's the time for everything. We out here. So literally, I I just got the um, a Range Rover 2017. Yes, sir. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go grab uh, probably three more this week. Right, right, yeah. right. And the cars don't need to be new. So where do you, where, okay, so somebody that doesn't have a lot and doesn't have a target next to them, where do they keep the car? Where do they keep so the car? So based on my students, they tell me that they park it at their homes. Some people are not comfortable with that. They'll deliver it whenever they just get a new booking. They'll meet them at Publix. Mm. They'll meet them at, they'll park it somewhere, even on the street, incognito. So depending on what type of car you have. If you have a regular car, you can just park it at yeah, a sure. regular spot, right? But if you have a luxury car, it's like it sticks out like a, uh, a sore thumb. thumb. Yeah. So, depending on what type of car you have, depending on what area you live in, you just have to figure it out. It's, yeah. not, it's not difficult. You just got to figure out. A lot of people harp on all the details, though, in the beginning before they start. Mm. I didn't do that. I literally said, I have a car already. Let me see what it's going to do. I uploaded it. Instant booking. Same day booking. Now I'm forced to figure it out. Mm. All right? Yes, I took an L. Yeah. As far as the money wise, yeah. but I got it back. Yeah, for sure. To for where sure. I made twenty six hundred dollars profit off of one car. And in, in your course, you teach how to not take these L's. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I took an L with my Maserati. Shane, Shane, that's my guy. But he didn't tell me how to how to uh, how to what it called. Um, look at the car properly. The mm. car I'm purchasing, I didn't know the Maserati that I bought 
all the tires are were bald in the inside. I'm outside. Oh, it's perfect. Good, good tires. I was driving. Tire got flat. I went to Firestone. I pulled in Firestone. The dude pulled out the tire and said, look at this tire, man. Show me how bald and naked that tire was. Wow. He said, you were driving. Yeah, I just got the car. He said, this is the most horrible tire. Matter of fact, look at the rotors. You need new rotors. Went to the back. This one needs a new one. I'm thinking he's just lying to me because this yeah. is my first time in the car yeah. industry, really. So I'm like, I know mechanics. They're known for being, yeah. you know what I'm saying, finessers. Right. Hey, man, you lying right now. He said, but he had no reason to lie. Firestone, that's not, he wasn't it's that not a person. commission type joint. Yeah, it's not his own shop. He's like, I'm here to do my hourly, whatever the case right. may be. Right? So he told me that you see these ridges on these rotors? These are not supposed to be here. Right, right, <laughs> right. You see how rough this one is? You hear that? That ain't supposed to be there. Nobody told me that. <laughs> so I had to take, I called uh, Maserati. All right, cool. I'm just buying the parts. How much for a new rotors? Uh, how many cars, how many, how many tires you do? I need on four. $2,800. Yeah. So, so, um, so you just find a place to keep your cars yes. and you just kind of keep rolling. You know what Joshua used to? The, um, the, the, the park and ride airport joint. joint. So fell on those times I went when the Boost Mobile, he passed, Boost Mobile store crash. I mean, Boost Mobile store launch. I'm going through depression, lose relationship, lose the Boost Mobile store. Fall on hard times, I went and started working at a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, right? You go from all that to working out of where that's humbling. I go from... Yo, there's nothing worse. There's, it, it's bad to be down. Mm-hmm. But nothing worse than to go up and then come down. Yo. That's tough. I go from living in a condo in Alpharetta, driving a G-Class Benz truck, AMG to a 1996 Mercury Cougar mm. working at a warehouse living in my sister's house with five kids at the time she had five kids in the three bedroom four bedroom I, I made it uncomfortable yeah. I made the living uncomfortable yeah. I didn't even have a bedroom set I had an air bed the Mercury Cougar, the door didn't open from the inside. I had to open it from the outside. Mm. Listen to me. That's when I said, and I knew it looking back. <laughs> Yo, you finna get the bar. I've never, I was going through depression and didn't know it. You know how I found out? I'm working at a warehouse and I go, <clears throat> why am I here? Once again, I'm poor hustling. I wanted to, they were going to fire me. I needed to make it to Christmas because we get Christmas bonus. It's like yeah. a $2,000 check, yeah. right? I said, how do I do it? Thinking, I go and I call. I know the next day they're going to fire me. So I call psychiatric uh, hospitals to have insurance and say, I'm thinking about hurting somebody. They go, are you thinking about hurting yourself? I go, no, I'm thinking about hurting my manager. So they go, okay, let's come in for a psych evaluation. I go, what happened? I go, yo, listen, I'm just randomly crying, having outbreaks, real emotional, and it's just like, 
I don't know why it's always him as a person. Like when I'm dreaming, it's him that I'm seeing on myself punching and like physically attacking. I don't know what it is. It was like, well, what kind of hours you working? I'm working 60 hours a week. Boom, boom, boom. She take me off work that day. They were gonna fire me that night. Mm. But I've talked myself so much into this story to get out of work. They made me go to counseling. <laughs> so <laughs> in counseling I find my depression wow of what I was going through where I was at mind state what I didn't deal with what did you find out about yourself through counseling through the traumas that I was living through, I've never dealt with them. I was uncomfortable even talking about my best friend. Like, I've made it to where it didn't exist. So, they taught me, and I remember she was like giving me different exercises, and she had to make me comfortable even speaking and acknowledging what happened, things that happened. It's okay. It's part of life that I had to cope with that, with the fact that that relationship I had is gone. Yeah. So after that, she had to deal with it head on. Boom. Wow. So then I realized it took me a little while. I went back, and um, when I went back to that job. kicked in and said, why are you even here? I got the bonus. Mm -hmm. Got the Christmas right, bonus. I came right. back a week before. Right. I got the bonus, right? <laughs> Listen, they were upset, right? Shout out to ABW out there in Kennesaw. Yeah, I got the check, right? <laughs> um, I went and I said, why am I even here? I went to apply for Wells Fargo. I became a personal banker. Guys, from warehouse, personal banker. Got back in my suit. Got it. <laughs> right, right. So, back to the old Jew. So I got back in my suit. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I got back in the suit. Um, and that's when I started learning banking products. I started learning that people couldn't get approved for business loans. They couldn't get approved for loans at all. Like the, the ratio for people who get loans. Mm -hmm. I was giving loans to people who I would look and they would have like a $2 million mortgage. What? Yeah, they would have a $2 million mortgage. They can come and get a loan. Oh, you got a, oh, you got 200000 Yeah, nah, you can't get nothing. Hold on, a $2 million mortgage? Yeah, no, listen, I was working in Roswell, Wells Fargo, all right? People will come in, they have $2 million mortgages. They will be able to come in and go, looking for a personal loan. They can come and get What distinguishes incest from sexual assault is that for sexual assault, the state would have to prove that the sex was non-consensual. But for incest, even consensual sex is considered a crime in the state of Nevada if it's an incestuous relationship. Ostensibly, the state chooses to regulate it as a morality issue and to prevent inbreeding and increased risk of birth defect.
compact sedan, and they just find out when you get there. Right, right. Turo, you get to choose the car, no hidden fees, everything is clear as day. So that was the benefit. So with me, I was driving my, this is how it happened. Justin, new ACO. I got a rental car. I'm like, man, I'm, I don't care what car it is. I got a little small Ford, Ford like the small little, I think it was a Forte, I don't know what it's called. A small car. Right. I had a meeting with Justin Owens, new ACO. I went to Target to go drop, we parked in Target. I went to the car, he hopped in his car, what car, it was S550. I hopped in my, my um, little small Ford. He clowned the heck out of me. <laughs> Cause y'all about the same height too. And he knows how much money I make. Right. <laughs> he knows what I can afford. He was clowning me like, bro, why are you in that car? Right. Like, why does it matter? Right. We just need to get to point A, point B. Nobody cares. Everybody knows I got it. Why does it matter? But he said, he grilled me so much. On my, on my whole ride home, I was like, man, I'm about to get in the car. I'm, t- I'm tired of this, driving this. I'm tired of having to explain myself. <laughs> that's how I end up getting the testimony. So that's wow. the question. Why would somebody not just um, rent a car from Hertz or Budget or a traditional rental car mm-hmm. company versus Turo? Because you have more options for nicer cars. Gotcha, gotcha. What about credit checks and credit cards? I know you sometimes... I, there was a point in my life where you're so you say, okay, I'm gonna go get, I'm get a rental car, but you never know what they're gonna ask for. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it, you know that yeah. my heart always. You don't know if you're gonna get it. Like, gonna get they it need a credit card. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. with Turo, you don't need to have a credit card. That's another benefit of it. Or the platforms like Turo, even a personal booking. All depends on how somebody wants to run their business, but usually with a traditional, you have to be a certain age, mm-hmm. you have to put it on a certain deposit, deposit certain credit, uh, what else do they need? Sometimes you have to have a flight ticket to prove that you're not a true, local. True, like there's true, true. Of course they do it to protect their business, I understand, mm-hmm. but some people don't have those options, so they need other options to be able to get a car, to run out. Gotcha. So, so they really, really Toro. They'll let anybody who has a driver's of license. They, of course, they go do background checks. Of course, there, there's a, 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 a vetting process. Of course, all that, and of course, the car's insured. But it's not as difficult nice, as gotcha. the traditional rental car. Gotcha, gotcha. And you can just find what you like, like right. something nice. Gotcha. That's the key piece. Gotcha. It's options. I got better so, options. So, income potential. Walk me through income potential. Income potential. Depending on what car you have, it always falls around anywhere cash flowing. This is net profit. Cash flowing anywhere from $300 a month to even upwards of what I was making, $3,000 per car. Mm. My Corvette was averaging $1,600. My my Tesla was averaging $2,600. Profit. Profit, 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 profit. This is literally profit. Mm. Um, my my C three hundred it didn't perform as well. It was probably in the the eight hundred dollar range. Mm-hmm. So, it all, but, but me, I have my receipts. So and I show cash people flows, cash flow. Though. Cash flow is cash flow. So you then compare your cash flow to the amount of time that it takes to manage the operation. So with me, I did it all by myself. I then hired one of my brothers at church to help me out with the check-ins and checkouts. But it wasn't labor intensive. I was still able to do my real business, my marketing mm. agency. I was still able to do the things that I really enjoy, going to church, hosting Bible studies, while managing these three cars. Yeah. 
-hmm. And I realized that the cars that I had leveraged the marketing deals that I was actually closing. Mm. And I told people, yeah, I own a car rental company, small, small fleet, three cars. I got a Corvette, Maserati, C300. They were so amazed at the fact that I was in this business that they weren't even thinking about the marketing no more. They was just signing the deal. Oh, right, tell me right. about the Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about that story that you told me. Right. How do I get in this? It was so it was amazing leverage. Where do we where do you keep all these cars? All right, all right. This is crazy. That's a good question. So I initially remember while I was keeping my cars? Target. Yes. Once I went from three and I turned up, I was parking the cars. I was trying to park the cars at Target. The Target um general manager called me and said, Um, this is Matthew. Are you the one who has all these cars on my lot? He said, yeah, you, you got to move them. You're ODing right now. I, I, I did the most. I, I forced <laughs> You're ODing right now. I was getting away with the three cars. But as soon as I tried to bring them all there, then now I was like, all right, I'll move them. Can, can you give me like a week to figure it out? He mm-hmm. said, he was cool. He was super cool. Cool. I'll give you a week. I think it was during, it was, it was, it was during a big weekend where they needed, they definitely need the space. Uh-huh. And now my cars are a big attraction. Everybody was taking pictures. You can see on the cameras. They showed me. Everybody was going around the cars, taking pictures near the cars, oh, all that wow. crazy stuff. So I had to figure it out. I had to move all my cars to my apartment. One of my other apartments in Norcross. It was I got a picture of it. All my cars lined up in all the parking spaces. I got away with it for two weeks until they called me and said, You gotta move these cars. <laughs> right. By God's grace. By God's grace. As I was posting, every time I got a new car, I posted on my Instagram, like, look, I got another car. In terms of the severity of penalty, possession would be the least serious narcotic offense. Then would come possession for sales of narcotics would be more serious. Then actual sales of narcotics. And finally, trafficking of narcotics. And in essence, the penalties go up like steps uh, with each level of narcotics possession. Nevada narcotics laws are actually the harshest in the country. And even sale of a small quantity of narcotics can subject an individual to substantial periods of incarceration. As a matter of fact, under the Nevada trafficking law, sale of more than 28 grams of a controlled narcotic can subject an individual to life in prison upon conviction. Uh, although the, the statutes are broken up into uh, possession, uh, possession for sale, sale of narcotics, and trafficking laws, uh, because uh, the amounts in, uh, to be considered trafficking in Nevada are so low. As a matter of fact, four grams or higher can, can constitute trafficking in Nevada. Um, if you're charged for trafficking, you know, you really need to obtain counsel because the penalties are very harsh here. The good news with regard to narcotics laws in the state of Nevada is although the laws themselves are very harsh, typically prosecuting agencies are fairly reasonable about negotiating resolutions in these cases. For example, um, one case that got a substantial amount of media attention was when Paris Hilton 
was arrested for possessing cocaine. And um, it was originally a felony charge. There was a lot of immediate media attention. Other celebrities and, and certainly a lot of people that aren't famous, you know, go to Nevada, specifically Las Vegas, to, to have a good time, to party, uh, and choose to engage in narcotic activity. Um, most often, although the penalties uh, are severe, um, for a simple possession of narcotics, it's very common to be able to negotiate a resolution that involves a plea to a misdemeanor offense so that uh, a fun time in Las Vegas on the weekend doesn't necessarily turn into a lifetime of uh, difficulty uh, and a, a felony record. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you in your future. The penalties depend on whether or not you have priors. For a first-time offense, it would be treated the same as a DUI, alcohol. Um, minimum two days in jail, up to six months in jail. Uh, for a second-time offense, it's a minimum of 10 days in jail. And for a third-time offense within seven years, you're looking at a felony with a minimum one year in state prison. Additionally, you would be required to do a DUI class, which you could do online, you'd be required to attend a victim impact program, and you'd be required to pay fines and fees. Here in the state of Nevada, if you've been in an accident while driving with a prohibited substance, including marijuana, and someone's been injured, the penalties go up substantially. And you're looking at up to 20 years in state prison if you were in a DUI marijuana-related accident where somebody was injured.
Yo, I need an ambulance over here. Yo, that shit's upstairs? Oh, I think they out here. What's she have on? That shit's upstairs, though? Somebody got hit arrested in connection with the deadly shooting at Irving Plaza last May faced a judge today. All right, as Lisa Everett shows us, federal prosecutors think they've got more than enough evidence to prove that he is the trigger man. There were some stunning claims in a case here at federal court that has disturbed many in New York's hip-hop community. A federal prosecutor says a popular podcast host known for shooting off his mouth was also shooting off a gun inside Irving Plaza last May, but his attorney denies the charges. 31-year-old Daryl Campbell, better known as multimedia personality Taxstone, went before a judge in federal court to be arraigned on two federal gun charges, including gun possession by a convicted felon. His attorney, Kenneth J. Montgomery, told me outside the courthouse, Campbell is not guilty. We deny all those charges. In court papers, federal prosecutors say DNA retrieved from the Caltech 9mm handgun on the grip, the magazine, and the trigger indicate it was Campbell's weapon. 
and that he fired the shots that wounded rapper Troy Av and two others and killed Troy Av's bodyguard, Ronald Bangham McFadder, last May. Montgomery says there's more to all of this. Obviously, there's going to be discovery turned over and more facts and perhaps 3,500 materials in the federal system, so I'm going to reserve any comments about facts until the appropriate time. Prosecutors say Troy Av picked up the gun after being shot and that it's the one we see him allegedly holding in the video released by the NYPD. In court, the pro There are a variety of circumstances in which self-defense may become an issue in a criminal case. Uh, it could be a situation where somebody uses deadly force and they've killed somebody and the defendant is claiming, I use that force to protect myself or to protect somebody else because under the law in the state of Nevada, you have the same right to defend yourself as you do to use self-defense to defend somebody else who's in a position of vulnerability. Additionally, under the law in the state of Nevada, you have the right to use deadly force against a burglar that comes into your home with the intent to commit a felony or cause substantial bodily harm to somebody. We represent a lot of people involved in disturbances, fistfights, often alcohol is a factor, but it's very common in Las Vegas, people are coming to have a good time, and sometimes, you know, things get out of hand uh, and people get into fights when they're out trying to have a good time. Um, it's not uncommon in those situations for the police to come and just arrest everybody and charge everybody with a crime. Uh, however, there's nothing in the law that says that you have to tolerate someone else's abuse. So if somebody else is physically aggressive with you, um, you have the right to defend yourself. So if you've been charged with a battery and that battery stemmed from some type of, of, of quarrel um, where you felt legitimately that you had to defend yourself and used physical force in doing so, um, it's important that you hire an attorney that will aggressively defend you and assert your right to self-defense in order to either uh, convince the prosecutor to drop the charges altogether or uh, to win your case uh, with a self-defense argument at trial. Another area where self-defense can come into play is with relate, in relation to battery domestic violence, a quarrel between, for example, a husband and a wife. Um, often it's a neighbor that calls the police. The police come, they may hear arguing back and forth. In Nevada, most often it seems that law enforcement tends to arrest the, the person that got the worst of it. So that if somebody has a mark, the presumption is, well, the other party was the aggressor, the other party should be taken in. But it doesn't always work out that way. It could be that uh, 
that the person that has the injury is the one that started the fight. And it's not always the man that, that does the battering. Sometimes, um, you know, a woman might throw something or a woman might swing at punch her domestic partner. And the, the man might simply be responding or defending himself. In those situations, self-defense certainly may come into play. And an aggressive uh, defense attorney will assert that uh, you were only you, you know, you were exercising your right to self, uh, your, to, to defend yourself, which is, which is perfectly lawful. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you in your future. Pretty complicated, pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six. And those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via chapter four under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sort of, the defendant's sort of back at it again. We're saying you're gonna get extra points. The defendant's gonna get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted. For example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court martials, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, but not juvenile status offenses. You know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months, and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a a three-pointer, you got a two-year prison sentence. It's a three-pointer. You have a time period. It has to be within 15 years of the sentence. You'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15-year period and the defendant got a prison sentence and was released within that 15-year time period, it's also countable. Okay, these time periods are important to keep in mind.
So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult um, prior sentences. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you also count sentences that occurred before uh, age 18. And it's a little bit different. Here you get, you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months and it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence and position or release. A two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years and a one-pointer for all others. Now, there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules, and we can't point them all out for you, but the key ones, especially for you new folks, the key ones to be looking at is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, relevant conduct. Under 41.2A1, it says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense. If you had a drug case, for example, where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current offense conduct, okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it. As, prior, as a prior sentence. It gets a little complicated, but you know, on that point, but the basic rule is if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the, the, the current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're gonna include it um, as, uh, you're not gonna include it as a, a prior uh, the sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual, 41.2A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately and prior sentences imposed in related cases are uh, treated as one sentence, one sentence for purposes of uh, 41.1. If a if defendant comes in for a sent, uh, in a prior sentence, and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence and and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision. Sort of like the question, well, how do, how do the guidelines treat a, a prior sentence where there was also a, a probation sentence where then the probation... A person's home is their castle. And it's a rare occasion that law enforcement is going to violate the sanctity of your home. But if law enforcement does knock at your door, you would ask them, do you have a warrant? If they have a warrant signed by a judge, let them in. Law enforcement may also try to get your consent to search. 
They may step in when you open the door and say, we're going to search your home. At that point, you absolutely have the right to say, no, I need you to leave. You don't have my permission to search. The only circumstance that the police can come into your home without a warrant would be if there was an exigent circumstance, such as a health and safety check, if law enforcement had the reasonable belief that someone in your home might be injured, or if they are in hot pursuit of a fleeing felon who just ran into your home. The bottom line is, you have the right to be secure in your home and you have the right to say no to the police if they try to search your home without a warrant. We're going to consider those things that occurred in avoiding detection or responsibility for the offense of conviction. And those things may be occurring even after the offense of conviction, but there's some attempt to avoid detection or responsibility. Still, temporally, it's expanded a little bit, but there's still this nexus, this connection with our offensive conviction. Now, under A1, the who is going to be everything the defendant did. We have, uh, you know, a lot more legalistic type language. We say if the defendant committed an act, or if the defendant aided an act, or abetted it, or counseled it, commanded it, induced it, procured it, willfully caused it. But basically, it's like, did the defendant do it? But we're also going, in some instances, look at the acts of others. Now, the acts of others, we require a further analysis to occur. And this, we refer to it as our three-part analysis. First, you have to determine the scope of the defendant's jointly undertaken activity. And then you have to make the determination, well, these acts of others, were they in furtherance of this undertaking my defendant was engaged in? Would a reasonable person have foreseen that engaging in undertaking with other people, that they may have done these kinds of acts in furtherance of this undertaking? The defendant committed the robbery, okay? So now we're asking about this the specific offense characteristics of Chapter 2 consideration. We know A1 covers Chapter 2 consideration. And the question is, was a firearm possessed? Well, the analysis is this act occurred during the offense of conviction. He possessed the gun during the offense of conviction. It was an act that was committed by the defendant. The defendant did it during the offense of conviction. It's relevant. Yes, when the guideline says give five offense level increase, you have relevant conduct of a firearm being possessed by the defendant, you give the five offense level increase. But say our defendant did rob this bank with others, and our defendant didn't carry the gun, the other guy carried the gun. When the offense level increase says give five levels if a firearm was possessed, is our defendant going to get that or not? The three-step analysis. Was our defendant engaged in jointly undertaking activity with this other person? And what was that scope? Well, the undertaking, undertaking that our defendant had was the robbery. Was this act of this other person, this act we're looking at, the carrying of the gun, was that in furtherance of this robbery? Hmm. He did point it at the teller's mace. Did, did seem to give money a lot more quickly when he did so. Seems to have been in furtherance of the undertaking. And then finally, would a reasonable person who has undertaken a robbery with someone else have foreseen that someone may have used a weapon during a crime of violence? And we have to answer that as well in the affirmative. 
If so, then even though it's an act of someone else, it is relevant conduct, and being relevant conduct, the defendant's held accountable for it. This defendant and that defendant, they robbed a bank together. Hmm, what was the scope of the conspiracy? Well, the scope of the conspiracy was to rob the bank. Sometimes the conspiracy and what the defendant has undertaken are mirror images of each other. They are one and the same. But that is not always the case. The scope of the criminal activity jointly undertaken by the defendant is not necessarily the same as the scope of the entire conspiracy. The examples would be uh, the defendant is, is convicted of a conspiracy count, uh, and the conspiracy count has your defendant and 100 other people engaged in a conspiracy to import drugs on 100 different occasions into the country. Well, your defendant is criminally responsible, criminally liable for this conspiracy, having been convicted of it. But for sentencing purposes, we say, well, what this defendant undertook may not be the same as this entire conspiracy. And you have to look at the facts and say, well, this defendant's undertaking actually was the importation of drugs on three occasions. Out of those hundreds of importations, this defendant was engaged in three of those. You have narrowed down from this entire conspiracy the, the undertaking of this particular defendant. Reasonably foreseeable. Uh, we have that language about reasonably foreseeable. Reasonably foreseeable is the language in our three-step analysis, three-part analysis for holding the defendant accountable for the acts of others. As such, reasonable foreseeability applies only to the conduct of others. It does not apply to the acts of the defendant. For instance, the defendant's convicted, say, of the conspiracy. And the act of the defendant in the conspiracy was the defendant brought in the bag of drugs that contained two kilos of heroin. Well, turns out the defendant says, gosh, I had no idea I was bringing heroin. I thought it was cocaine. And I didn't realize it was two kilos. It felt like about a kilo and a half to me, you know. And the question is, well, gee, would that have been reasonably foreseeable to the defendant that he was carrying heroin instead of cocaine and that it was two kilos instead of a half kilo? You don't even have to go there. Because if the defendant did it and it occurred during the offense of conviction, the defendant's responsible for that. So reasonable foreseeability isn't something we're looking at in regard to the acts of the defendant. That's when we're looking at the acts of others. And as we look at the acts of others, keep in mind, it's only one part of the three-part analysis of looking at the acts of others. For instance, the defendant, out of these 100 importations with these hundreds of people over this long period of time, undertook three of those importations. First time failure to register in the state of Nevada as a sex offender is a Category D felony carrying a prison term of up to four years. Failure to register for a second time or more in the state of Nevada is a Category C felony, which carries a prison sentence of up to five years. Additionally, you can only request the district court to eliminate your requirement of registration if you have registered for 15 years consecutively. So failing to register would cause that time clock to start anew and delay your ability 
to seek to have the court end that requirement. Hello, I'm Michael Castile, an attorney with the Las Vegas Defense Group. Other than the crime of murder, in Nevada, sexual assault is the most serious offense you can face in this state. If you are convicted, in addition to facing a lifelong prison term, you're also required to register for life as a sex offender. Even if eventually you are paroled, it may be difficult to land a job with this on your record. In Nevada, the legal definition of sexual assault, otherwise known as rape, is when a person subjects another person to penetration sexually against the will of the victim or under conditions in which a perpetrator knows or should know the victim is mentally or physically incapable of resisting. In short, it's illegal for you to have sex with someone against a person's will or when you know or should have known the person lacked the capacity to say no or to understand what was happening. In some cases, where someone unlawfully touches another person in a sexual manner that falls short of sexual assault, such as groping, for example, he or she might be charged with the lesser Nevada crime of open and gross lewdness. In Nevada, even though rape is one of the most serious crimes you can be accused of, it also lends itself to several effective defenses. The following are some of the strategies a defense lawyer may employ in Nevada sexual assault cases. Number one, false accusations. Judges and prosecutors know that innocent people can be falsely accused of rape, whether it's out of anger, jealousy, revenge, a way to win child custody, or just an honest misunderstanding. If your attorney can raise a reasonable doubt by showing that someone may have falsely accused you, your sexual assault case should be dismissed. Number two, lack of proof. Unless there was a video recording of the incident, sexual assault can be extremely difficult to prove because it often comes down to a case of he says, she says. As long as the state cannot show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, sexual assault charges should be dropped. And finally, number three, consent. Rape is forcing someone to have sex against their will or when they're too incapacitated to resist. Therefore, if your attorney can show that the victim gave his or her consent to have sex, then Nevada sexual assault charges cannot stand. If you or someone you know has been charged with sexual assault, please don't hesitate to contact our law office at 702-DEFENSE to arrange for your free consultation or visit us at 702defense.com for more information. Thank you. I want to introduce you to a well-educated man who went to prison. We're going to hear about why he went to prison and what he did while he was in prison. David, thanks so much for being on the program. Tell us a little bit about your background before we get into your prison experience. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I was a practicing and licensed attorney in the state of Illinois for almost 15 years prior to becoming a... uh, management member of a, of a startup biotech company in the Chicago area. Uh, and uh, that ultimately led me to prison uh, where I was convicted uh, in uh, the early 2000s of a white collar crime of uh, wire and mail fraud. Uh, Let, let's I, talk about that for a second because people might have some level of, you know, that, that doesn't seem 
congruent. You're, you're an attorney. Uh, you later became a CEO, and that you found, and yet you found yourself in the crosshairs of prosecutors. Tell us a little bit about what it felt like to learn that the Department of Justice was targeting you for prosecution. The case ultimately began as a uh, Securities and Exchange Commission civil case, and there was a referral, as I understood it, made to the uh, U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office in, in the Northern District of Illinois. It was How long very did that take? You found out that there was a SEC investigation, and was there actually a finding in the Securities and Exchange Commission investigation? No, actually. That began, the SEC investigation began uh, in early 2002, uh, and uh, the SEC uh, ultimately did not uh, come to a conclusion in that case until after the criminal case was resolved. It was actually put on hold during the pendency of the criminal case. So the so, cases were going simultaneously. First, there was a Securities correct. Exchange Commission case, then that was put on hold and the DOJ picked it up. Is that right? That's correct. And when you found out that you were a target of, of uh, criminal charges, what did you do? Did you, did you agree to cooperate or did you go to trial or, or did you plead guilty? What did you do? Well, when I first found out I was a target was during a, uh, a raid of our corporate facilities. And I wasn't told I was a target, but it was basically a common sense conclusion. I hired an attorney at that time, and uh, the case ultimately was not prosecuted, or the initiation of the prosecution didn't begin for another two to three years. So there was a, a long period of time that I remained the CEO of the company and chairman of the board, but then ultimately I relinquished those positions. Others came involved. and, and Tell us about that. That's, that's interesting. So you... There, the, the Department of Justice raided your facility. Then there was a two or three year period before you were charged. Is that what I understood you to say? That's correct. And were you operating uh, in the capacity as if this was going to be, you were going to be exonerated from that raid? Or were you concerned that there could possibly be criminal implications? I was quite concerned there was likely to be criminal uh, repercussions. The problem was that if the company shut its doors at that point, there certainly would have been, in my view, criminal repercussions. So I continued as I was. So you continued, and then ultimately they returned an indictment. Did they arrest you, or did they just serve you? I was not. I was never arrested. Uh, I had counsel at that point who the U.S. attorney was familiar with. So I, uh, I, uh, I just, it was a uh, no cash uh, self-recognizance bond scenario where I simply appeared for my arraignment. And you appeared for your arraignment, and then how did it ultimately end up with regard to the adjudication of that case? Did you plead guilty or did you go to trial? I ultimately pled guilty approximately two years later. What was the cost of litigating that case. Do you recall, David? Um, I believe it was uh, $25,000. So not a tremendous amount of legal ex legal fees at that time. Um, were you happy with the representation you received? Yes. And you ultimately agreed to plead guilty to a sentence of how long? 14 years. 
Well, was, let me let me backtrack. I did not agree to a, a fixed term of incarceration. Um, we simply agreed to plead guilty without a determination or agreement on the loss figure, which is the large driver of the sentence ultimately in these mail fraud, wire fraud cases, uh, my responsibility for a particular loss figure. So because that was left open, I didn't agree to a, uh, an, an amount of years. That was What were you anticipating with regard to a sentence when you agreed to take the plea agreement? Uh, in the area of 10 years. It was, uh, I was told by my counsels at that point, because I also had sentencing, uh, uh, specialist in sentencing at that point, that they were confident that I would be able to get to a minimum security camp initially. That did not occur. So you thought that you would get 10 years. Had you not gone, had you not accepted that back? That's in the 90s and the 80s that that mindset exists. It's not relevant now. Only people that that's relevant to is people who won't acquire new information and don't stay up to date with systems, right? Because there's no way that you can look at a vehicle unless you just don't have the information. I got friends that make six figures off of vehicles. No way you're going to tell me that that's a, a liability. It's a liability if we don't utilize it right. So then I started telling people, I said, listen, you want, you want to learn. Okay, here, let's take a car like a smart car, right? I went and found the littlest car, right? Littlest car that nobody wants. I'm, when I tell you, right, it's the smart car for two, right? Listen to me, I'll right? Be honest, I, I didn't think it was yours when I saw it. Right? I said, and then I saw you driving. I said, it is. <laughs> yeah, right? And I'm like, yo, I, like, I put music in and everything. Yeah. Be, I'm like, yo, listen, funny thing is that I buy the smart car and then not only, so I buy the smart car. I tell people, listen, let me explain something to you. I got the smart car. And this is what I teach people as well. I say, look, you can go to a uh, swap lease and literally do a lease takeover, put no money down out of pocket, get a car that costs $200 a month. This vehicle costs $200 a month. Now what happens next? Since this vehicle costs $200 a month, I say, hey, yo, listen, earn your leisure. I got a car that's going to be in, in downtown Metro Atlanta 12 hours a day. It'll probably get exposed to about 20, 30,000 people a month. Yo, Give me 200 bucks. I want to put earn your leisure on the left side in your company promotion. Is that something that you'll be okay with? 200, we'll do it. Sold. Lights, right? That, that's that's light. Okay, well, guess what? I'm going to get somebody else to put their business on the, on the right side. I'm going to get another business to put their business on the back of the door, on the back of the vehicle, right? I now make 600 bucks off a $200 liability. Then I they say, well, how are you going to keep it in Metro Atlanta for 12 hours a day? You going to drive it? No, I'm going to go and hire somebody to drive it. So now I'm a, well, I'm going to rent the car out to somebody who want to drive for Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, one of the grocery delivery services. Look, give me 150 a week you don't pay gas or insurance you give me 150 a week and you use the vehicle now i got and you use the car six hours a day you got options you got um, access to a six hours a day seven days a week that's one person i do two people so now that's 12 hours that's a 12 hour shift in the day that's two people paying me 150 150 a week 
that's $300, that's $1,200 a month. So now I'm making $1,200 a month off the drivers, $600 off the advertisement. That's $1,800 a month, $1,600 of that is profit. I'm making $1,600 profit off of one vehicle that they said was a, 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 a liability. If I got two cars, I'm $3,200 to the good every month. To the good. $3,200 a month. Straight cash, homie. It's, what, it's one of the best things I've heard you say, man. Mindset is the only liability. It's And now you make $3,200 a month. Imagine this. What's your background need to be? What do you need a degree in? That's $3,200 a month paying for a vehicle. Now, if you if you really get tricky and you understand is that, then you go, well, it's other cars out there. And you can look up, it's websites that are hacked and say, hey, look, these cars perform the best on Toro, right? You can literally get one of those cars and then make it pay for your other ones. Or you just use it as income. You come home and you're like, yo, I got my credit together, but I don't know what to do with it. How do I turn my credit to cash? That's one of the credit to cash strategies is actually learning how to execute and and learn system. I, I, want, I want to talk about something. That was a whole lot of game, um, what you're known for, and that's turning credit into cash. Mm-hmm. Most people, when we think credit cards and how we get cash from it, it's like, yo, if we get a cash advance, then we can take money out from it. Yeah. But your strategy has no cash advance, and it still is liquidating. Can you break that down? So it's a little bit different. Like I, it's a whole bunch of different ways, right? When it comes to like turning credit to cash. And I tell people, one, you don't ever want to do, if you had to pull money out doing a cash advance, they're going to charge you more and they hit you with extra fees and a higher percentage. So I tell people kind of stay away from the cash advances, but I do things like it's just ways to generate cash, especially like my mindset is entrepreneur at all times. So like I tell people do things like, you know, knowing which credit cards to use to do certain things. Um, for example, um, if I go and run ads, right? Like I could run ads and when I run ads, I can run ads and generate income back. But if I wanted to like pull money off, like what you just said, something like you just said, like trying to pull money off without doing a cash advance fee. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we used to do for fun is like I would go on a cruise. And because when I go on a cruise ship, guess what happens on a cruise ship? Is that they give you the debit card, the room key. Mm-hmm. So when I go on a cruise ship and use the room key, I would just go to the casino and get 20, 30,000 in chips. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says, no guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, Casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property. And if gun carriers refuse to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, 
it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines. But CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed while saving their gun rights. Additional offense levels. Would that be applicable in our scenario here? Okay, so this guy's going from a 20 to a 22. Uh, firearm, weapon, or threat of death, and that can be anywhere from two additional offense levels up to seven, depends upon type of weapon and the use made of that weapon. Okay, so the guidelines would have you add five additional offense levels as you're, if you're looking in your guidelines manual. See, this guy's going to pick up five more levels for, for the possession of the firearm. Uh, how about victim injury? There was a victim injured, and what was the degree of injury? Bodily injury. Now, of course, bodily injury, you know, you're saying, well, what is bodily injury? We know the person got pushed, they had this injury. What was the degree? Again, as you're applying these guidelines, the commission has, following the guideline itself, commentary that includes application notes. And there's a lot of definitions, a lot of definitions are contained there. Uh, to include what were definitions of injury. We send you back to somewhere else in the book to locate those. But definitions of, of injury, of weapon, other things that you will be considering in the application of the guidelines, we have definitions for those things. Uh, another just general point is you go through guidelines application, for instance here in Chapter 2 and elsewhere, uh, the guideline application is cumulative. You started with the 20, and it was a bank, you added two levels, and there was a firearm possessed, you've added the five levels. In other words, it's a cumulative uh, application as you go through. However, within a subset, for instance, we looked at weaponry a while ago. Well, you may have the guy that goes in, you know, loaded for bear. He has the gun, he has the knife, he's discharging the gun, he's using the knife, and it's like, whoa, now did I give a seven plus a five plus a four, whatever. I mean, you're adding all those up. It is not cumulative within a subset. Within a subset, if more than one is applicable, as would be that set of facts, you would give the highest of those that are applicable. If more than one is applicable, as would say always be the case, if you discharge a firearm, obviously you possessed it if you discharged it, uh, you're not going to give the five for the possession and the seven for the discharge. You just give the higher or highest uh, as would be applicable if more than one uh, could be applied. We have a definition of loss that's the value of property taken, damaged, or destroyed. So depending upon what was taken, what was damaged, what was destroyed in this robbery, all that adds up and represents a loss figure. In our scenario at hand, we had uh, loss of uh, 
$18,000, that's more than $10,000, and picks up an additional offense level. And again, you'll notice that recovery doesn't make a difference. In other words, a guy, hey, I took $18,000, I'm going out the door, you got the die pack going off, this money's no good, I'm running. The defendant still has taken $18,000, even if recovered. Or if restitution had been paid, maybe they didn't, never recovered it, but the defendant's paid full restitution, still there was that amount that was taken under our definition of loss. The concern that we have here is on the cross-reference. Suddenly, you know, this defendant who was operating at offense level 32, you know, if, if a victim was murdered in this, in this robbery, then we would cross-reference you. We'd say, well, that 32 number, we're not going to use that. We're going to cross-reference over to the guideline for first-degree murder, and the offense level we're going to use instead is going to be 43. So we've jumped the guy from a 32 to a 43. Now, the jury hasn't come back to make any finding that this guy was convicted of, of murder because he's not convicted of murder. This guy's convicted of robbery. The maximum statutory penalty for armed robbery is 25 years. So the question is, is this going to be a guy whose sentence the commission feels is more appropriately down towards, say, one day of imprisonment or who sentence more appropriately is up around 25 years of imprisonment. And to make that determination, the commission has you look at a number of factors as to what occurred in this offense. And again, not looking at it beyond a reasonable doubt, but once you're applying these guidelines, looking at it at a preponderance of evidence standard as has typically been used in sentencing. And the commission, by sending you on a cross-reference, even though we've cross-referenced you to the murder guideline and we're using the 43 if that cross-reference occurs, this defendant still is not looking at what the penalty would be for murder, which is life. This defendant is still looking at a maximum of 25 years. Now, the 43 in the calculations, this guy's probably going to end up with a guideline range that's going to be in excess of 25 years, I dare say. But nonetheless, the maximum exposure of this defendant is 25 years. The statute will trump the guidelines. This is going to be one of the defendants who's going to get a sentence that's going to be right at 25 years. Now, the concern, of course, is does the commission think it's fair to bump this guy up closer to 25 years when he hasn't been convicted of the more serious offense of, of uh, murder? And I would have to say that, yes, the commission obviously has taken those things into consideration in formulating the guidelines in this fashion. Okay, now having completed your Chapter 2 calculations, coming up with uh, a number, and you notice we're still on our worksheet A on page uh, 48. We're about halfway down that worksheet. We have a 32 from our Chapter 2 calculations. But then we go to... In the uh, event that that is advantageous to their position. So, this is... Subject matter jurisdiction in a nutshell, that is one of the initial topics that you will cover in civil procedure. Some of your professors may begin with subject matter jurisdiction. I begin with the next topic, which is personal jurisdiction. So I'm going to talk about that right now. Personal jurisdiction also relates to where can this lawsuit be brought. So we've talked about federal versus state court, a very important initial determination. 
but we haven't talked about geographically which federal court we're talking about. Are we talking about a federal court in Tennessee, Vermont, etc.? Where is this going to go? Personal jurisdiction is an important limitation on your choices in that regard. You can only bring this lawsuit in a court that would have jurisdiction over the defendant. So subject matter jurisdiction is jurisdiction over the topic of the lawsuit, over the subject of the suit. But you also have to have jurisdiction over the defendant or the defendants, if there are many defendants. Personal jurisdiction rules lay that out. So here we have a situation where there's a plaintiff from New York and a defendant from Texas. What courts might have jurisdiction over this dispute? Well, one easy one that you'll learn about is Texas. Because the defendant is from Texas, you can sue them in Texas for anything. I'm from Virginia. Anyone who has a legal dispute with me can come to Virginia and sue me here because I'm a citizen of Virginia. Again, you'll learn what it means to be a citizen of a place. You're not just a citizen of a place because you're physically located there. There's other things, subjective and objective, that go into that determination that you'll learn about. So, Texas courts could hear this case. They would have jurisdiction. Would New York courts have jurisdiction over this case? Well, the defendant's not a citizen of New York. The plaintiff is, as you'll learn. Doesn't matter that the plaintiff is a citizen of the state in question. That's not going to render the defendant subject to jurisdiction there. Uh, that doesn't mean this case can't be litigated there. Under what circumstances might this case be litigated in New York and in a way that there will be jurisdiction over the defendant? If the car accident happened in New York, if the car accident happened in New York, then you can sue the defendant in New York regardless of where they're from. Same thing if we were talking about Wyoming. Can this case be brought in Wyoming? Well, not based on the citizenship of the defendant, but if the car accident occurred in Wyoming, then we don't have a problem. It can be litigated there. So personal jurisdiction is going to be based in part on citizenship, but mostly what you're going to be studying is the circumstances under which jurisdiction is based on the incident and the defendant's connection with the state through the dispute or through what happened that gave rise to the dispute, something we call specific jurisdiction. So personal jurisdiction is something that is a very important initial determination that has to be made before you can select a court where you're going to litigate a case. Now personal jurisdiction is not the end of the where. We're still dealing with this where question. Federal versus state, we've already determined that. Personal jurisdiction, I've given you some sense of that. There's another requirement and this is called venue. Now you would think we've done enough to figure this out. All right, I've got to federal court. Now I know I can go to Texas because the person's from Texas. That's not good enough. Why not? Because if we're in federal court, there are four districts in Texas. 
Texas has four federal districts. New York has four federal districts. California has four federal districts. Virginia has two federal districts. Some states only have one district, like Delaware, Maryland. So venue is based on congressionally enacted statutes, and that tells us which district among all of the 94 federal district courts we can use to bring this case. So I may have personal jurisdiction throughout Texas over this person, but I need to know which district to go to. If we're talking about an individual defendant here who's from Texas, we would need to know which part of Texas he is from. Taking Virginia as an example, I live here in Charlottesville. This is in the Western District of Virginia. So if someone wants to sue me in federal court, there's citizenship in Virginia. So Virginia state courts and federal courts would have personal jurisdiction over me throughout Virginia. But if this person brought the lawsuit against me in Richmond, I'm about as real as they come. All my beats tailored by Joe. Maserati, Rick, and Detroit. Convertible bird in Miami. Graduated summa cum laude. Strip club made a tsunami. Carlton Hines with the ball game. Grateful Edmonds with the snowflakes. Craig Pettis in the M Town. Sal Magluta with the boat game. Falcone with the cocaine. Like Freeway Ricky with the plug game. Like Monster Cody in South Central. Larry Davis from um, I don't have an issue with Troy Ave. I think his music is mediocre and he like tried to like portray this image that he was like making greater music than everybody in the city when he wasn't. You know, it was like a time like when Bobby Schmurder was the hottest person in the city. He was trying to say he was the best, trying to take the, you know, I was like, I had to like be the person to interrupt that. So I just feel like he's like a fraud rapper. Like he never was a drug dealer. Like his dude is just weird. You know what I mean? So. That's really it. It's no issues with Troy F. So what did you say that kind of got... Because he just released a diss song about you. So yeah, what did like you a, say Like a three-minute diss record. I think it was his best record ever. I, I actually liked the record. I played it 76 times. Um, what did I do? Um, I bothered him for five years. Like just on social media, just, you know, just calling him out on different things, you know what I mean? He likes to bully, like, little scrawny white people, but when it come to, you know, dudes this you know, he think to take him on, he falls back. So I, I think at this point he decided to attack me after five years of attacking him is because now I'm, like, on MTV and shit like that, and I have, like, a podcast that's jumping off tax season. So I feel like he probably just used that, like, oh, yeah, I know he ain't going to jump all the way out the window. But, you know, he's he's not too smart. Twitter fingers, how many times you going tweeting? I'm always on the fly, I guess you too scared to meet. Hell no, I've confronted him, no. I've been in his his video shoots with Mano. This was last year, April, and I've been harassing him for five years. So he needs to stop it, you know. He knows, uh, you know, it's just it's some shit. He just, and you know that was some backed up shit for you to rap about a nigga that don't rap for three minutes. You know what I mean? Like, that was deep. My favorite line was, Cass beat you up in jail. <laughs> Guess what, y'all? Cash did beat me up in jail.
But guess what? I beat Cassim three times before that. Um, he got me arrested. You know what I mean? I'm like, what the fuck do you mean, my nigga? Like, so what? I lost mad fights. Niggas still, and you still don't want to fight me, though. Know what I mean? rappers in hip-hop history. At only 15 years old, the Southside Chicago rapper took the rap game by storm after being one of the first people to really put Chicago drill music on the map. Chief Keef's demonic style of hip-hop was like nothing we've ever seen before and had everyone from the streets all the way to the suburbs anxiously awaiting for the next Chief Keef record to be released. But it wasn't just the sound of the music that created all this hype around Chief Keef and the Chicago drill scene. It was rather the actual lyrics that he was saying in his music. It was all authentic. 
Nobody even questioned it for a second. All it took was 30 seconds of a Chief Keef song and a music video to figure out that Sosa was about that life. Whether he did the dirt himself or was around people who did, everyone knew that there wasn't any lies being told in his music. And Keef and his affiliates have the rap sheet to prove it. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Chief Keef. Chief Keefe's first documented run-in with the law happened at the age of 15 on January 27, 2011. Details are scarce on this arrest, but from what the charges say, a young Sosa was either caught at the trap house or in the process of selling from what was produced from the trap house. Whatever it was, Chief Keefe was detained in the act and was charged with manufacture and delivery of heroin near a school, public housing building, or park. Chief was charged with a Class X felony, but keep in mind he was only 15 at the time, which obviously made him a minor. In Chicago, juvenile offenders are found to be delinquent of charges rather than guilty of the charges. Sosa was let out of jail, but sentenced to home confinement on the charge. The second arrest of Chief Keefe happened on December 2nd, 2011, almost a year after his first arrest. Sources say that the police responded to a call of shots fired in the 6100 block of South Indiana Avenue. When officers arrived, they spotted Chief Keefe walking out of the front door of his grandma's apartment complex in the 6100 block of South Michigan Avenue, holding a coat over his hands that were in front of his waistband. Officers tried to stop and question the chief, but instead of cooperating, Sosa dropped the coat, flashed a blue steel handgun, and sprinted through the vacant lot next door to the apartments. Several officers immediately gave chase to the fleeing chief, who allegedly would stop and turn towards the police and point his pistol at the officers. This caused the officers to pull out their weapons as well, and even though Sosa did not shoot at the officers, the officers shot at him multiple times, but missed. After shots were fired, Chief Keefe continued running for his life before other officers caught him a half a block away in an alley of the 6100 block of South Indiana Avenue. One officer claimed to have suffered multiple bruises in the act of trying to detain the chief. They also alleged that Chief Keefe ditched his pistol throughout the chase, but it was soon recovered moments later, completely loaded and ready to go. Chief Keefe was charged with four felonies for this incident, which included three counts of aggravated assault with a firearm on an officer and aggravated unlawful use of a weapon. They also charged the chief with a misdemeanor charge of resisting arrest. Sosa was held in the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center for a good while until the judge sentenced the chief to house arrest at his grandma's house. This next incident wasn't an arrest, but rather a pretty well-known investigation involving Chief Keefe about a murder of a rival rapper, Lil Jojo. For those of you who are unaware, Chief Keefe and the rest of GBE were going back and forth with a rival rapper named Lil Jojo. 
Just days before the tragic slang of Lil Jojo, a video went viral of one of Chief Keef's good friends, Lil Reese, threatening to kill Lil Jojo after Jojo drove by their neighborhood, taunting them. Later that week, Jojo was killed while riding his bike. Chief Keef took to Twitter the day after the incident, tweeting, It's sad because Jojo just wanted to be like us. Hashtag LMAO. Despite the clear taunting online, no charges were filed. It is possible that no charges were filed due to Chief Keef claiming a hacker tweeted those tweets, but JoJo's brother begs to differ. Whatever the case may be, JoJo's murder is still unsolved to this day. After a few months of staying out of trouble, Chief Keef was ordered back into court for a probation violation stemming from a previous gun conviction. Authorities say that Keefe went to a gun range for a music video shoot in New York. Chief Keefe apparently wasn't allowed to be anywhere near firearms as one of the conditions of his probation, so when the judge found out about this, he wasn't happy. The judge sentenced Keefe to 60 days in juvenile detention. At the sentencing, Chief Keefe said to the judge, I'm a very good-hearted person, and I'm sorry for anything I've done wrong. Give me a chance. And then, three months after his last sentencing, Chief Keefe was arrested yet again in Atlanta for disorderly conduct after a security guard at Lay Meridian Atlanta Perimeter Hotel called 911 on the chief after claiming he was rolling. The prosecutors are working with right now. So they have somebody that obviously is talking to them and has been talking to them over the last two months. And on this gun, here was the other big question, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do the Facebook Live to explain this, because I was, you know, I'm educating myself a lot of times when I'm doing these stories, and what I learn, I, I love to share with you all, because so many of you make comments, and then, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll put everything together, and we kind of get to a better place, we get to more... You know, we get more information. I know what questions to ask. A lot of times you'll bring up points and then those are questions that I'll ask the people that I'm interviewing or whoever's giving the press conference. So in this particular case, um, the gun, this this Caltech 9mm semi-automatic handgun, had DNA from the dead bodyguard, it had DNA from Troy Ave, and it had DNA from Taxstone on it. So how do they look at it? The way they write it in the court papers, they go, there's a billions and billions and billions, you know, how many billions of chances of probability that it's this person's DNA. Um, but what they said with the gun is the, the placement of the DNA and some of you law enforcement and investigators and detectives, uh, detectives, will understand this better than I I do. They said the placement of the DNA on the gun gives you a much better idea of who had actual possession of the gun. So for example, with this gun in this case in in these in these court in these court papers that we got and that you know that I read of course obviously a couple times they say that the DNA from Taxstone was found on the trigger of the gun. That it was found on the grip of the gun, you know, where you put your put your hand around it, and that it was also found on the on the uh, bottom on the butt end of the 
clip or the magazine that gets gets that that gets you know however that gets put into the nine millimeter handgun. So his DNA was in places that made them think almost without any shred of a doubt, according to what the prosecutors say, that without any shred of a doubt that this was Tack Stone's gun, that he pulled the trigger. The prosecutor said in court, in open court, we believe Tack Stone fired the shots that wounded these th three people and killed the bodyguard. He didn't call him the bodyguard, but he said Ronald, Ronald McFadder. And our condolences, my condolences go out to Ronald McFadder's brother, Shanduke McFadder. He's been a partner with ours in our Push for Peace um, efforts with the youth and also with our Hot 97 audience. And I know they've been going through terrible, terrible loss. So my, my condolences again uh, to you, Shanduke, and to your family but and to Trish. But... Um, and your babies, but uh, I think the the main thing about this is that there's a, there's a lot more to this case. So it's very convoluted. It's kind of crazy, and the other crazy thing that you need to know about it too is here's this man lost his life, uh, Ronald McFadder, and basically this whole this whole beef, if you want to call it that, between Troy Ave and between um, Taxstone started over social media. It was insults, it was words, it was don't come at me, do come at me, I can handle it, all these kinds of things. So it was a very sad situation that all this had to happen behind it. Now Tax Stone is in federal custody at the moment. The judge today, uh, Judge Peck, said that he was gonna grant uh, a bail package. However, the other thing is, that now we found out, I just found out a few minutes ago, that the prosecutors appealed the bail. They said that Taxstone should not get bail because he has uh, two previous felony convictions, more than 20 arrests, that he's a flight risk, and that basically he belongs behind bars until they figure this whole thing out. So that's where we're at. They're going to go back to court in the morning, on uh, Wednesday morning, and they're going to see how everything's going. And uh, the prosecutors are going to say, Judge, we don't think this guy should get bail. Ken Montgomery, who's the attorney for Taxstone, is going to argue he should get bail. And this bail package should stand. And that's where we are with it. But um, I have an interview that's here. I have to go do the interview. And I want to invite you, all of you, uh, tomorrow we'll be do tomorrow morning we're going to be recording a new episode of Street Soldiers. We're going to be talking about the Trump presidency, what it means for urban America, and also what it means for civil rights. And we have a very well balanced panel. I'm going to go do an interview with uh, somebody right now for that. And so we're going to have a very exciting Street Soldiers show for you on Friday night at 10:30 about the new president love him or hate him he's going to be the new president and people have to deal so we're going to be talking about how people are dealing or get a loan a car loan trade my car in and get a car loan she said no so a few months later she said no again so she said no several times finally my car basically broke down and i explained to her that there was just no way i couldn't have a vehicle 
And so she said, okay, you can get a vehicle, but you can't spend more than, I think it was $350 uh, a month. I ended up having to spend a little bit more than that, and she was okay with that. Um, and I ended up getting a, a, a new Jeep. So, you know, I, I, got, I got lucky because she really is in complete control of me. For instance, I'm not allowed to leave the middle district of Florida without permission. And so if somebody dies in Georgia and I need to go to Georgia to go to a funeral, I have to ask. And she can say no. Now, I've been lucky because I've been traveling around the country. I've been to California a couple times. I've been to Puerto Rico. I've been to Pennsylvania. I've been to Texas. I've been, I've been all over the place. Utah. So I've been all over the place doing podcasts. And I've been lucky she's allowed me to travel. She's only told me one time that I couldn't travel. Um, so... Um, so that was the first year, it was pretty tough, but now she's loosened up a little bit. I'm not having to do the random urine tests every month. And I was getting random urine tests once or twice a month at least. Um, I don't have to see a shrink anymore. Um, that got loosened, loosened up. Um, what else is going on? Like, let me give you an example. I got lucky and I ended up getting... Uh, I ended up getting federal unemployment. I got uh, a chunk of money. Like I got a nice chunk of money. I forget what it was. It was like six grand or seven grand. I forget. But I got a, I got a nice chunk of money. And, um, you know, they wanted 25% of it. They wanted 25% of my unemployment. So she and I went back and forth and I explained, look, I'm going to have to live on this money. There's no chance that I'm probably going to get this money again. There may not be another stimulus package. What are you doing? What am I, what happens if I go under? What, so I, we went back and forth, back and forth. She came back and she was like, look, you got to pay 800 bucks at least. So I gave her $800. So, you know, the, the point is, is that this goes on like this until until um, I'm off of probation. Now, once I'm off probation, I have five years paper. I'm a, at a year and a little, a little bit over a year right now. So once I'm off of paper, um, you still have to pay your judgment and restitution, but it becomes a civil judgment. And basically it's between you and a collection agency that collects for the federal government. So then you if you start all over again. Now, if you don't pay, there's not much they can do because they're going to put a judgment against you. So I'll have a judgment on my credit. There's not much I can do. Even if I make the payments, they're going to put a judgment on my credit. So then you just have to determine, do you want to pay or do you not want to pay? I'm not sure how I'm going to pay off $6 million dollars. And the judgment's going to attach to me no matter what I do. So I'm not sure what's going to happen at that time. Um, I'll have to figure it out with the uh, collection agency. So let me give you another example. A lot of guys that are on paper, um, you know, it's like you can get off paper typically at about the halfway point. 
So if you behave yourself, you have a million problems, and the probation officer is like, look, this guy's really not a problem. He's not going to, we don't think he's going to get in trouble. He's doing pretty well. We, the, his recidivism rate um, is low. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll quash your paper. They'll take you off your paper. So you could have a three-year rest, three years probation and get off in a year and a half if you're good. The problem is because I owe $6 million, I'm not going to be able to get, get off paper. If you owe money, then the government doesn't want to let you off paper because they feel like as soon as we let you off paper, you're going to stop paying. And, you know, so they would rather just keep you on paper for the whole five years. Now, what happens a lot of times is guys will violate for some reason. They'll get in trouble with the law. They'll get pulled over. They'll fail some urine tests. Um, maybe they're smoking pot or doing drugs, and they'll fail a couple urine tests. And the probation officer will say, hey, listen, you know what? Your Honor, we're, we're done with this guy. He He's... He's just not manageable. He's not, you know, he's not supervisable. And they'll throw him back in jail. Maybe he does six months. Maybe he does three months. Maybe he does two years. And when he gets out, they'll just take him off paper. Now, sometimes they reinstate the paper. I know guys that have gotten out, of, gotten out, had, let's say, four years paper. They got out. Six months later, they violate two or three times. And they come back, and when they go in front of the judge, they go, Your Honor, can't you just send me back to prison for like six months and then just quash my paper because I'm not going to stop smoking pot. I'm not going to In Las Vegas, we often see situations where undercover vice officers will set up a sting operation. Could be through the internet, could be by use of the telephone, where they will stage a hotel room. And an undercover officer will be in a hotel room. And a female will arrive at the hotel room ostensibly for the purpose of engaging in sex for an exchange of value. But something that will, something will happen. It could be that the female gets a, a feeling that something's not right. And the, they'll never go through the act of prostitution. But there'll be a discussion. Maybe the law enforcement will say, look, we're going to let you go. But if we let you go, you need to tell us how you got here, who sent you here. So we often see scenarios where law enforcement provides an incentive for the female to point the finger at somebody else. Law enforcement may forego the prosecution of a prostitute to go after what they perceive to be a bigger fish or a pimp. So, district attorney's offices are now taking these cases very serious. The legislature has made it an agenda to increase the penalties. And therefore, if you've been charged uh, with the crime of pandering in the state of Nevada, it's very important that you hire quality representation to fight your case to avoid these very, very harsh penalties, including going to prison for a substantial period of time and paying huge fines.
getting arrested for battery constituting domestic violence here in Nevada automatically goes on your criminal record. Note that the battery domestic violence arrest remains on your record even if you never get charged or if the charge later gets dismissed. If the arrestee is ultimately convicted of battery domestic violence in Nevada, a record of the conviction goes on your criminal record as well. The only way to get rid of arrest and conviction records is through the record sealing process. Criminal records are a matter of public record in Nevada, so anyone can find them through an internet search. Employers routinely do background checks of job applicants to see if they have a criminal record. The only way a battery domestic violence conviction becomes invisible to others is if the person gets the record sealed. Once it's sealed, almost no one has access to that information. Note that sealing is not the same as expunging. Expunging means that the record is destroyed whereas sealing just means that the record is, quote, cloaked and therefore impossible to see by most people. Unlike California, Nevada law does not allow people to have domestic violence records expunged. It's a good idea, if possible, to get your record expunged. Having a battery domestic violence on your record impairs future job prospects since employers look down on it. It's also socially stigmatizing. Once a person gets their battery domestic violence record sealed in Nevada, no one has to know about it. And the person can legally deny on a job application or during a court hearing that he or she has ever been in trouble for battery domestic violence. Battery domestic violence simply involves an offensive touching with someone that you're in a domestic relationship with. It could be a girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, someone that you've had previous sexual relationships with. It could be a husband, wife, your partner, or it could also actually be your child or even someone living in the same home. The penalties for battery domestic violence in Nevada are very serious because the Nevada legislature has made it an enhanceable offense. So your first battery domestic violence within a seven year period is a misdemeanor, punishable by two days to six months in jail, a fine of up to $1,000, and a court will typically impose some anger management classes, which could encompass uh, six months to a year. On a second offense, the minimum jail time goes up to 10 days. And on a third offense within seven years, it becomes a class C felony with up to five years in state prison. The good news is that here at Las Vegas Defense Group, we've had a great record of success over the years in getting battery domestic violence charges reduced or dismissed. And we find that this is a crime for which a lot of innocent people get wrongly accused. Th these cases tend to arise in, in very turbulent, volatile times in a relationship where a couple is about to get a divorce or about to break up, about to move out. 
And the accuser is often very angry and very bitter and, and, and oftentimes will exaggerate to the police or embellish a story to the police or even make up false allegations to the police just in order to get the other person in trouble. The defenses to a battery domestic violence would be one, that there's no domestic relationship. If the person making the allegation is not actually a girlfriend, boyfriend, or former boyfriend or girlfriend or family member, you might be able to get the charges reduced to a simple battery based on no domestic relationship. Obviously, self-defense comes into play because self-defense is a complete defense to battery domestic violence. Also, in battery domestic violence cases, self-inflicted injuries are often things that we see as well. So all those are defenses which we'll try to use on your behalf um, given what situation you might be in. With regard to defenses in battery domestic violence cases, a lot of the time self-defense can be kind of ambiguous. It's hard to decipher from the facts who was the aggressor. And sometimes law enforcement might be predisposed to view the male as the aggressor or view the person with the injuries as the victim. But we know that that's not always the case. The person that could be the one that started the fight could end up the worse off afterwards, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't at fault. So we really like to explore all of the issues resulting in the charge that comes forward. Sometimes the defenses that we can raise can be complete defenses, which we would assert at trial. Sometimes we can use um, our defenses in the negotiation process. And if it's ambiguous as to who started the fight, we might be able to convince the prosecutor to reduce or dismiss the charge because they simply can't prove the case. It really is the wild west here in the state of Nevada when it comes to the right to carry firearms. We are an open carry state, which means that anyone who has the lawful right to possess a firearm can openly carry a firearm on their person as long as it's not concealed. There are limitations about certain places that you can't bring a firearm, like, for example, a courthouse. But otherwise, you can carry an open firearm on your person. We are also a shall-issue state when it comes to carrying a concealed weapon, which means that if you take a course and you demonstrate your proficiency with firearms, then the state must issue you a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Starting in 2011, you need a separate permit to carry a semi-automatic firearm. But if you take the course and you demonstrate your proficiency, the state must issue you that permit.